0: There are lovers, Mike Hendley here, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. In each episode, I'll be bringing you along on my journey as I explore what it means to be an artist. But don't worry, it's not just going to be me talking about my favorite tools and sketchbooks the whole time. I'll also be chatting with other talented artists about their experiences, and sharing some of my own insights and reflections on my art journey. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 96, The Unlimited Art of the Limited Palette with Hazelstone. Hi everyone, welcome back. So a few quick updates. The Etcher course that I did previously, which is uh, called Textures in Depth with Graphite Pencil Drawing, is now available as a recording. So I will provide a link in the show notes for that. You can go to Etcher Studio and find it there. That is me drawing an American Bullfrog and talking you through how I see uh, before I start doing a piece, and how I did it in pencil and so I would encourage you if you're interested in drawing to check out that course and in addition to that, uh, a previous guest, Cassie Draws, has an upcoming acrylic course on Etra Studio that begins uh, beginning of April, so she was a guest here on the podcast wonderful artist, uh, fantastic at acrylic, so if you're interested in pursuing acrylics and taking it further this course looks exciting and i would recommend checking it out i'll provide a link to that in the show notes as well so just a reminder this is episode 96 on our way to 100 and i'd like to thank all of you who've been sending in clips Uh, and and for those of you who are thinking about doing it i would recommend doing it sooner than later the 100th episode is until the end of may But the sooner I can get them in, the better I can kind of organize things out. I'm going to try and play them all during the episode, but we'll see how many I get and (laughs) what ends up happening between now and then. So uh, what I'm looking for, if you haven't done it already, is an audio clip. could be a couple of minutes long, just about maybe what was your favorite episode or something you've learned in the last four years, or maybe how the podcast has impacted your life and your creative journey. So I'd be interested in whatever story you have to share, and I will play those clips on the podcast. If you choose not to record an audio clip, you can always send me a message, and I will read that as well. So if you're a bit nervous about recording something, you can send me a message. Thank you, everyone, who submitted uh, an audio clip. You can do it, once again, through the audio app in your phone. Uh, You can record it as a voice memo and send it to mike at mikehandley.com, or you can do it through SpeakPipe which is an online-based recording tool available on the contact page at drawinginspiration.fm. I did try something fun this week. So there is a um, an individual called Rick the Muse, who's you can find him everywhere. He's um, just a wonderful character. He shares these fantastic photos of himself in various kind of dynamic poses. Uh, he's got this wonderful texture on his face, and he's very expressive. And I decided I was going to draw a human. <laughs> so... Of course, I had to go to his his image, and I chose to do that in uh, Procreate on the iPad, and I think I spent about an hour and a bit on it and it was a lot of fun. I used I think two or three brushes, and I just kind of pushed pixels around i didn't I tried sketching, and I thought, no, 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 I'm just going to throw down some color. So you can check out my feed on that on Instagram, and you can see kind of the time lapse. It was really fun. I don't usually draw humans. After I did that, I was thinking, oh, I have to draw more humans. I'm, I'm looking for dynamic poses. I don't really, I don't think I'm a big portrait person. You know, I've I've got a bunch of uh, images that I've been kind of sitting on that are like dancers and kind of dynamic poses. And um, I've got some people with some really wonderful expressions on their face, kind of like Rick does. And so I think I may do something else, but I think maybe I'll try like maybe acrylic or pencil. Uh, I'm not sure yet, but uh, I'm intrigued now. I, I think I'm going to play more with, uh, with drawing a few humans. So watch out, humans. <laughs> I'm coming for you. <laughs> so that'll be uh, that'll be something I'll be looking forward to in the next few weeks. So I also did a, a barn owl. And I did this just before a dentist appointment I had in a coffee shop. I love just drawing, painting in a coffee shop. This one was, like, really super quick. I was just... Uh, I used my uh, Micron... Uh, 005 with the sepia ink. And I just quickly sketched the outline really, really quick. And then I went directly to watercolor and then used that to kind of separate the lines and separate the colors. And um, I didn't quite finish the feet or anything. I just really want to do something really fast. And I actually had to stop before I was, I think I was finished uh, just to get my, to my appointment. So it was it was a lot of fun. I just love drawing in coffee shops. its I like the white noise around me. And typically people don't say very much to me, so uh, even though I've got my kit laid out and all that kind of stuff, I don't mind if people do, but uh, it's a way for me to isolate and uh, hide in plain sight, so by sitting in a coffee shop and painting. So previous podcast guest, Marek Buzinski, hosted a conversation with a Ukrainian artist, and they were chatting and painting uh, this, um, sketching and painting this writer's museum, which is in, um, in Scotland. And I saw the photo and it's like, I have to do that. So I joined in and listened to them chat and I decided to sketch it. So I pulled out my Arches uh, cold press paper and my Sailor Fude pen with some platinum carbon ink and I sketched it out while they were talking. And I decided to then come back to it later on and add some watercolor. And it was fun. I haven't re- realized I haven't drawn on or I haven't sketched with cold press in some time so it was really good to be scratching at that surface with the food a pen and uh, if you want to know what that is and my other tools uh, there is a link in the show notes but if you go to mikehenley.com and click on gear you can see a link to that uh, pen it's a very inexpensive fountain pen and uh, the platinum carbon ink is a permanent uh, ink black ink and it is wonderful so anyways i'm sketching on this cold press and scratching along and i kind of I started with pencil to kind of get this um, this museum kind of the top and the bottom and the edges trying to define it. And I was coming down the top of the um, of the museum, kind of the the roof, the rounded roof at the very top. And I went partway down the windows and I'm like, what am I doing? And I just stopped using the pencil and I went straight to ink. Like once I had that overall kind of shape of, you know, where are the floors, where are the windows? I just went straight to ink. And that was just so liberating. It is so much fun just drawing with ink and just giving yourself into the mistakes that you'll make. And I made lots of them. Um, so it was really just kind of fun sketching. It's challenging for me to do this kind of thing because I feel like I'm struggling with the detail that I want to see. So I'm trying to be loose, but it's like, oh, I just I need to add this bit of detail. And so I feel like I need to do more of this kind of thing. So I'm actually planning to do a bunch of urban sketching this summer. So I've, I have a bunch of destinations planned around the region. And so I'm going to actually be doing real kind of urban sketching versus this, which really isn't urban sketching. I was working off her reference photo as they were, but it was good practice. And it was a chance for me to play with the ink and play with the cold press and play with the colors. Uh, I used a mix It was predominantly the golden uh, core watercolors. That's Q-O-R. But I used a couple of Daniel Smith, uh, like Payne's Gray and things like that. It was great fun to be able to do this, and I appreciate everyone's feedback and comments. I don't know, I just, I really like moving through different mediums, whether it's pencil or acrylic or urban sketching, it's digital. I, I just love kind of dancing around here, and I feel like I'm pulling something from each medium into the other, and it's kind of building on top of it. So I'm really kind of enjoying this process. And enjoying learning and being creative and trying to find space for this kind of thing. I'm not really focused on my style. I'm not really focused on doing a thing. I'm just trying to play a little bit and coming back to, for example, urban sketching, which I haven't done in some time. And knowing that I've been spending so much time in pencil and acrylic to come back to it with things I've learned in other mediums uh, just really felt refreshing and to the point that I'm going to probably do a few more. Yeah, I I would encourage you to play and to enjoy this and not be bound by what people expect to see from you on social media. For me, I just, it doesn't matter. I'll post what I post. And if I'm working on something new, if I decide to do sculpture or wood burning, I'll, I'll post that too. It's it's all just fun. And I encourage you to uh, to do what you want to do and to share it with us as well. So I think that's it for updates. I hope you have a good couple of weeks. Now let's head into the interview. In today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome the immensely talented watercolorist, Hazel Sohn, as she shares her insights from her latest book, Art of the Limited Palette, a step-by-step practical watercolor guide. Through this illuminating journey, Hazel demonstrates the power of simplicity and how embracing a limited color palette can unlock new depths of artistic expression. As we navigate the pages of her book and discuss the techniques that have shaped her extraordinary career, we'll discover the beauty and brilliance that can be achieved with a minimalistic approach to watercolor painting. To talk about her creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Hazel Sohn. Hi, Hazel. How are you? I'm very well.
1: Thank you, Mike.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I I've been following you for such a long time, and I was so excited when I reached out to you that you replied and said you would come on because I'm, I think as most people working with watercolor – It's always a struggle. And it's, you feel like the solution is better paint or a better brush or better paper and better instruction. And you've got this wonderful book, uh, The Art of the Limited Palette, that we're going to get into a little bit later. I just received my copy and I'm so excited about this. We're going to go through it in depth. But I just, you know, all the books that you've done and everything that you're trying to do and kind of getting what you've learned out to others, I think is just incredible. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I always like to kind of understand where people come from and what inspires them and their journey to this point in time. And I'm wondering for you, were you the creative child? Were you the one that painted and drew? Was this something that has stuck with you your whole life?
1: Yes, but I wasn't the only creative child in my family because I, I'm one of four girls. And when we were children, our, we, we didn't have many things And we painted and drew a lot. And so we spent a lot of time almost competitively painting, I should say, because we kind of divided our sketchbooks into squares and then gave each other marks out of 10 for our design of a wallpaper or a dress or (laughs) something like that. And it was great fun. It was a lovely way. My my grandfather was made redundant quite young. He was an aircraft engineer. So we had a wonderful relationship with a a grandfather who was a painter himself. And uh, so I think you know any any one of us uh, girls could have been an artist but i was the one who ended up in my teen years really beginning to take it seriously and doing it in all my spare time
0: was it interrupting your other studies uh, i hear that from a lot of artists where it's like you know i used the margins of my math book to uh, <laughs> to draw
1: well yeah I, I always was i always was painting and drawing and i remember doing exams and if i finished an exam early i would sort of draw a map of the world or something at the end to just sort of try and impress people <laughs> I don't think it interrupted my studies because I was sort of one of those quite diligent girls. I was at girls' grammar school and I did enjoy lots of subjects. I liked geography and I liked physics and I liked, I didn't like maths, but I could do it. And I think my teachers thought that in a way I was wasting my life being an artist. But the art room was the most unusual place to be because the art teacher was a little bit crazy. <laughs> And I love the fact that you could do your ben- sharpen your pencil and drop the shavings on the floor and no one told you off that you would messed the floor up. And I, I mean, nowadays, people would think, well, that's bizarre. Of course, you could mess a floor up. But, it, you know, when I was young, you know, if you did that kind of thing, you, you had to get down there and sweep them up, but you didn't have to in the art studio. And so I think I was really attracted to this sort of crazy, sort of slightly rebellious world.
0: <laughs> that's exciting I, that would have been a fun uh, art class to be in I know I've, I've had art teachers uh, back in grade school that, and some of them I thought were a little bit different and I really admired them for, for that at the time just because it was different I didn't really understand that but the fact that you had that kind of opportunity to let things go in, in a protected environment is I mean that's what we look for when we're young and we look for it when we're older too right is trying to create that protected environment so we can just do what we, what we need to do
1: I think looking for difference. Yes, I think that, that's hit it on the nail, is that I? she was different and I was looking for difference. I kind of felt I could do the other things. I could do the geography. I could do the English. I could do all that. But This art, this was something different. This was something challenging. You couldn't necessarily do it.
0: It's so funny because, you know, when you talk about watercolors, I think almost like, you know, like humans a little bit, right, where you – the, the color really doesn't speak to you or really show its its true value unless you lay it beside another color. And I think people are like that, too. So you had that opportunity with a teacher who was a little bit different amongst something that was more strict and able to really kind of shine a light on what, uh, what that teacher was doing for you. So yes. th- that's interesting.
1: That's very true. Yes. Yeah. Contrast. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So you're in your teens, you're enjoying this wonderful art class, getting shavings all over your shoes. And <laughs> uh, are you at that point thinking, I want to make a career of this? And, and what did that look like in your head? Do you remember kind of look, looking forward? I know, as teenagers, we, we have a bunch of distractions, but what did that look like for you?
1: I did, very definitely, about the age of 15. Uh, at that time, I was painting in all my spare time, and not with particularly good materials but i was just loving making pictures and i remember thinking oh i'd like to do a career in art but i didn't know you could be an artist i thought it would have to be architecture art therapy art teaching graphic design i didn't i had never met a real live artist so i didn't know i thought they were kind of i think i thought they were in history books you know i'm not sure i thought you could be an artist in the 20, middle of the 20th twi- century, well, mid- well, no, not quite the middle of the 20th century, <laughs> second the late latter half of the 20th century, yeah, not quite as old as I'm making out, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it does feel like, I remember growing up that it felt almost like, like an artist was someone that was anointed, like the, they were outside of regular, like I remember thinking that as a kid, because I wrote down I wanted to be an artist when I was five years old, but I always saw artists as being completely different, like they were anointed, there was some kind of process outside of education that got you to the point of being an artist.
1: I would agree with that completely, because at the time for me, uh, it was the 60s would be when I was an early teenager, and the Hockney and the whole Royal College of Art, in England anyway, um, artists were in vogue and making waves, and previously you'd had the 50s, you'd had Jackson Pollock and, and Rothko and all those people, and so we weren't really learning about those artists, but as I got older as a teenager, I was hearing about them, so Basically, by the time I'm going to art college, well, I'm jumping ahead here, but then That's okay. I'm learning about real artists. And then I think, oh, this is possible. Yeah.
0: So you, you go to art college. How long is that program or was that program for you? H- Sorry, how do you mean? Uh, like, How many years was art college? Was it a three-year, four-year program?
1: Basically, I was the era where the, art, the specialist art colleges where you uh, would paint doing practical art rather than just uh, doing history of art and with a little bit of practical stuff on the side. They were, uh, uh, they were then a diploma, the Diploma in Art and Design, it was called, the DIPAD. So that's what I thought I was going to art college to do, which was a four-year diploma. You did a foundation year, first of all, which they still do. But then halfway through, it became a university degree, which, uh, to be honest, we were all going to boycott because we thought, how could you have a degree in painting? You know. It's- <laughs> um, but in retrospect, I'm very glad that I did go up and didn't, you know, be rebellious myself then because uh, it was quite fun wearing one of those mortarboards and things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone in my entire life has ever asked me if I have a degree, so it's not, much, not been to not be of any use whatsoever, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so did you, did you find other crazy people there? Was it, was it liberating to be amongst your people when you got to college?
1: It was. I think that I wasn't very confident then. And I wasn't confident of my own ability and I wasn't, if I'm really honest, very happy at art college. I found it very hard. I found it hard having to go right down. The the, the art teachers were brilliant. And in retrospect, I can see what they were doing. They were basically enabling you to be able to live a life as an artist because they took you right down to the very pit, the very lowest you could be. They would do things like you'd finish your painting and then they would come and pour, put black marks all over it. And then you had to undo all that trouble. You had to put it right. And you know first of all, you're thinking, you just want to you just think, "Why, why would you do this? Why? But then you have to deal with it. And so the truth is that it actually trained me to be able to be alone, to be my own judge of my own work and to know how to pull myself out of my own abyss. Hmm. So that wasn't a happy time, but it was very constructive. But I only knew that later.
0: That's interesting. I was going to ask you if it was a positive experience. <laughs> but I guess in retrospect, maybe it was. But
1: I mean, I, I couldn't at the time. Um, I was sort of, re- not wretched. I mean, I, I enjoy getting up every day because I was painting every day. And I used to, I loved the light. I had a wonderful studio where the light came in. It was on the 10th floor. The light came in if you got there at 7 o'clock in the morning. So I had to get there really early. After that, the light went away. And I fell in love with this slanting light. And so I was very excited to get there every morning and to be painting this. And I was, at that time, limiting my palette just to a few colours. I think it was yellow ochre, titanium white. This was oils, titanium white, ultramine blue and ivory black. And that was some advice that one of the tutors had given me. My tutors were excellent. I thank them regularly in my mind, because although it was hard, I know what they were doing, and they basically made me tougher than I wasn't tough before but they made me tougher.
0: It's so interesting. You mentioned the slanting light because there's that painting you did of your sister, and then there's a couple of others. And that's the, the primary focus is this interesting kind of slanting light coming in and hitting the subject just right. And it, it just, it, when you said that, it was like, I've seen you do that. <laughs> it must have had a lasting impact.
1: Yeah. It's never, I mean, still, it's that, you know, when light slants across a room, basically, I'm, you know, all I'm looking at is the light slanting across a room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it's, Interesting you talk about college, because I think people struggle with it a little bit. Some feel that when you go to art school, whether it's college, university, whatever the case, that they try and kind of take the creativity out of you. Some people come out of it thinking, you know, I went in thinking I was an artist and I was a creative, and then they just pulled it out of me and not allowed me to express myself. And, you know, I've had people struggle with that and, you know, struggle with the idea, should I go and take a program or should I not? And... I guess it's much different now. If you were, you know, in England or wherever, to 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 go into an art program,
1: I think art programs have changed. I think they changed in the eighties. Certainly in the seventies in England, they were still very much about training you to see, and for that I am immensely grateful because it taught me how to see the three dimensional world, the huge three dimensional world, and how to turn it into a small flat piece of paper, effectively or a small flat canvas, and how to not lose the immensity of it. And learning to see, I think, is the hardest thing for a painter. And it's the hardest thing to do if you haven't been trained, because presumably you have to think, oh, it's about technique. I've got to learn how to use the paint. I've got to learn how to make composition, etc. And all those things are true. But learning to see, and this is what I try to get across in my books, that, you know, you are not using watercolor to paint the subject you're using the subject to paint the watercolor because the thing you are creating is a new creation it's this flat world it's this flat piece of paper or flat canvas it's that is a new creation that is something of its own it's got nothing to do with the big wide world because it isn't the big wide world that was its inspiration but it is something new and that's what you're making
0: that's a really good point and I say that because I've thought about that with graphite, but I haven't applied it to watercolor. Because <laughs> I always tell people when you're when you're drawing with pencil, I, I like to see I see the image there already. All I'm doing is laying down the graphite to pull the image out. The creation is sitting there. I'm I'm just I'm laying down graphite to pull it out of the paper. I'm not like a printer, like a laser printer or an ink printer. I'm not laying down ink to render it. I'm pulling it out of the and I'm just adding uh, this material so you can see what I see. And I never really thought about the watercolor I do being the same way. And to your point, you know, it is that. It is understanding that that relationship with the piece that you're working on.
1: Maybe that's only that you're more familiar with graphite. So you feel you can do that because you're not worrying about the medium. Maybe you're just not familiar enough with watercolor yet to make it be obeying your gut, hand and eye. You're still conscious of the medium probably.
0: Yes, I'm, that's why I'm so thankful for this book, which we're going to get into, because I don't know color theory very well, so for me, my mixing palette is just a... Uh, a wonderful pool of <laughs> of messy experiences and and sometimes uh points of clarity so but we'll, we're going to get to the limited palette in your new book when we get onto to this a little bit later but so you talked about oils So you go through this program you're doing a lot of work in oils did that continue for some time after you graduated uh,
1: yes i mean basically art college then my you, watercolor wasn't really a medium that was used over much we I used it to make sketches that I then sort of out in the um, outside uh, and then brought them back in to turn into paintings. So I didn't think of my watercolors as anything other than preparatory notes. They were a way of seeing the world. And I didn't realize that in a way they were me seeing the world very um, instinctively and that me and watercolor would end up with a love affair <laughs> it was only at my degree show and that was actually one of the good consequences of becoming a degree is that they had to uh, allow the art you know the artist to show their work and so we had to put up stands which I don't think had been done so much prior to that and uh, I may be wrong but um certainly it appeared to me that this was a relatively sort of new thing where you had to make your own kind of stand like you know like an art fair type thing And my watercolors were attracting so much more attention. My my oils were the big things. They were on the wall. And I had these piles and piles of watercolors at the side. And people were saying, but these are amazing. These are amazing. And I was saying, no, 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 they're just the notes. These are the paintings. (laughs) And um, so I was starting to hear it, but I wasn't really listening at that point. And then I left college and had, uh, within about a year, I was offered a show in London and again, it was my watercolors that were getting the most attention and selling like hotcakes. And people were saying, but you know, these are watercolors. And I said, no, 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 no. These are just that. <laughs> and I, it, was, it took probably about eight years before, after leaving college, no, not eight years, maybe that's a bit long, maybe, maybe six years before I finally accepted that me and watercolor had something. And then I started taking watercolour seriously. But it was really bizarre how I didn't, I, you know, I, I didn't know. I couldn't recognise it.
0: <laughs> so you didn't discover watercolour till a few years after university or...
1: Really no, no, I discovered watercolour, but I, I, I didn't know I was now I should be painting watercolour.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Discovered that it was your your calling. So you're doing a, a bit of this as a matter of your rough work <laughs> in university. And then you finish with your degree. What did you do then? Were you, were you then a, uh, a working artist or did you, did you do other work in, instead? Or how did you?
1: Basically, I decided my degree show went rather well. I sold a few things at my degree show. So that made me think, hmm, the stuff I like doing self. And my work was a lot more abstract in those days. I became more figurative as I fell in love more and more with the world as I traveled. And I, I thought, well, if I can sell this work that I do because it's entirely what I want to do, then maybe I could make a living as an artist. So I was now thinking, ah, I could do this. But of course, I had no money. So apart from the money I'd just earned from the degree show. So I took a job as a barmaid because I figured I knew I had to paint in the daylight. I knew it because I liked light. So I the mm-hmm. barmaid works at night and works at lunch. You get your meals free and you meet people. And blow me, it was the best decision I could ever have made because that's exactly what happened. I got my meals. I got to work in my studio in the morning, studio in the afternoon. And I was able to pay a rent for a little studio. I paid for a little upstairs room in an old lady's house down the road. <laughs> <laughs> And it wasn't the best location, but it did have a window, so it did have light. And, uh, I, and, I, and I met people in the uh, in the bar, and that's how I got my first show in London. Somebody came in and uh, asked what I was doing behind a bar. Maybe I wasn't very good at a bar, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. And uh, said, uh, you know, what are you doing? So I said, and it was a very friendly sort of place, so it was easy to you know, let people know what you were really hoping to do. <laughs> And, uh, um, and I got offered a show. I took my work up there and got, and got a show. So
0: That's um, fantastic.
1: Within nine months of, of, of being behind the bar, I was able to actually give up the bar work because I had enough commissions.
0: Wow. Way to go. That's incredible. I always tell people that you've got to be aware of the network you're around. It could be friends. It could be family. It could be coworkers, It could be customers. And uh, it just takes that one that provides that opportunity to uh to kind of get you moving forward so i think that's exciting
1: i think i think for me it was also i thought i remember thinking at that age if i don't do this now i'm going to get hooked into things which cost money for example mortgages and owning a car and all that kind of thing and it's going to be harder and harder to make a living as an artist because i can see that there is risk involved And therefore, I need to make this risk now while I have no financial obligations other than my rent, basically. And so I think I was quite aware that I had to have no other string to my bow to make sure I made the painting work for me. That I, you know, basically I had to put everything into trying to make the paintings make my living.
0: That must have been hard.
1: Yeah, it was. I remember envying checkout girls in supermarkets thinking, you're going to get a wage at the end of the week.
0: <laughs> right. But I, I think there's also, you know, we we probably have less to worry about that, that the decision isn't as hard as, you know, let's say me, at my age, not far from retirement, it would be kind of foolish for me to walk, around, walk away from my job and think I I could just spin out my art business and go full time at this point. I, it's just not going to happen. But I I, I like to think that I'm not looking at a fork in the road, I'm looking at a knife, <laughs> and the knife is going to cut my current journey and direct me towards uh, the creativity. That's going to what I'm going to be doing probably in four or five years. Um, but I think when we're younger, we don't have kind of the mortgage, the kids going to uni, all this kind of stuff is... Uh, is there i think we we liberate ourselves from that uh, a little bit which is i think an opportunity and I'm, I'm so glad that you took it because now you're you're kind of providing us with all of this knowledge uh, that you've gained over years over the years and uh, i think it's wonderful that you did that
1: that is actually the reason i write the books and, and i actually want to kind of fast forward for people because i realize if you're only going to take up painting at 40 50 plus you know that that's still lots of years but it's You know, I don't feel, I feel I have hardly started. I feel like I've hardly begun. You know, life is not long enough to, you know, painting, there's so many different colour combinations, let alone Mm -hmm. so many different, I mean, basically, there's just not enough time.
0: I'm glad you said that because (laughs) I look at my palette and I look at what I want to do. And it's like, how does, how does someone like Hazel do it? I'm glad that you're struggling with the same kind of like, there's not enough time. My palette, I've got 20 or 30 paints in here. I love mixing, you know, these three, four, five together, but I want to do this and this and that. And yeah, I'm glad we share the same struggle, (laughs) even though that you've got this wonderful career that uh, I I think it, maybe we we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves that uh, we should just enjoy today and. Look and look forward to tomorrow.
1: The weird thing is, I suppose it's. Like, I think what people say isn't it? You're only as you're only as good as your last painting, or you're only as confident, or you're only as happy as your last painting, because yes, you can look back and be happy with your life, but at the same time, you want you know, it's the painting you're working on now that is filling your filling your being, isn't it?
0: Um, so you talked that you were doing abstract. That was kind of your focus early on, and then you. Uh,
1: abstract, sorry, they were abstracted figurative. They were always based okay. on something I saw, but they were much more abstracted okay. than my work is now.
0: Because I, I was curious about that, because I had Robert Bateman on uh, the podcast as well, and he was talking about h- how he went from abstraction into kind of realism, and he does, um, you know, his wonderful work he's been doing for years. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, is like, was, you know, either pure abstract or abstracted realism, was that more accepted uh, versus... Kind of where, what you're doing now? Do you think what you're doing now would be have been accepted as as a reasonable outcome in in university at that time?
1: Uh, no, it, it wouldn't have been. You're, you're quite right; it wouldn't have been. Uh, hmm. But I am. Ple- I, the thing is, every painting is an, actually an abstraction. It might look like something, but basically, because it's flat and it's a pattern of colors, it is an abstraction. Mm-hmm. So I am pleased that I went that direction and we were in a way trained to see like that trained to see patterns on paper trained to see tonal relationships because it has enabled me to i think that's why the paintings work because they're not about the subject they're about the painting
0: (laughs) it truly is a painting (laughs) it's yeah yeah, exactly So we'll get into some of your works as well, but when, when you look at your paintings, are what are you focused on? Are, are you thinking about, "Oh, that that horse took me so much more time than the other one," or <coughs> getting, getting that color mixed right? Are, are you focused on those details? Are you focused on those struggles? Like you talk about the painting, but there must be areas when you look at a piece do you think, "Oh, that's a really good memory," or oh, I had to do that three times." <laughs>
1: oh, my God. Um. None of those thoughts uh, sort of ring. Um, The thing is I'm so concentrating. I'm so in the painting. I I experience bliss. I mean, like bliss. I'm sometimes, I'm so, when it's, when the colour, I I just love, I love blending colour. I love putting one colour next to another colour and I love seeing it move into another colour and I love, I love watching paint dry. I love watching paint dry. (laughs) I love seeing a tone next to another one and I, I, I think I just enjoy putting paint on. I enjoy it in the palette first of all. So if I never had any paper, but if I had a palette, I'd be probably nearly happy enough. <laughs> but then putting it on the paper and seeing it move, and it, I mean the fact that watercolor moves is why it's so exciting. I think, and it, you know, it's they, all those little particles swimming into each other and mixing and blending. I get so excited about them. <laughs> I just want want to make the paint happy, really.
0: Are you you sad at all when it stops moving, when it dries?
1: I mourn the end of any painting. And the trouble is, you actually have to end a painting before you want to because you mustn't overwork it. And if a painting comes together quickly, it's usually a better painting. And the trouble is, uh, uh, you can't touch it. Uh, All you want to do is touch it. So... Uh, yes, yeah, so I go through yeah I go through regular morning of a painting finishing. Then when I start another one, I mean basically I just keep painting. As soon as as soon as I think mustn't touch it anymore, I then try maybe the same subject in a different color wave or the same subject in the same color wave if I feel it could have been a better rendition or something. And really, although I make paintings, the, it's painting. It's the action of painting that I am loving. It's. It's the verb rather than the noun. I mean, the paintings have to make my living. But it's the actual painting that I'm getting the huge kick out of, I think. I mean, obviously, I love it if a painting works. But usually, I, I think, well, I didn't have anything to do with it if it works. You know, I usually think, oh, my goodness, how did that happen? And I'm <laughs> paralyzed because I, I don't know how to paint like that again.
0: <laughs> well, and, and then I guess the struggle is, and we'll talk about this a bit later, is then how do you instruct someone <laughs> to do it?
1: Because actually, I mean, basically, I am not really teaching art when I'm teaching. I'm just teaching how I paint. I'm just showing how I paint. I'm not a teacher per se. I'm not being trained as a teacher. And I wouldn't be good at doing it too much or on a regular basis. That's why writing books is good for me, because I can sort of make it fit in with my painting. And I do do the odd workshop and things, because I do love seeing... I love seeing it it happen on the paper for other people, and I love showing how it can happen. But you see, you can, with watercoli, because it's so much about the medium. You can explain to people, here is this amazing medium. Do this, this, and this, and behold, you'll have this.
0: (laughs) I do get the sense, uh, and I've just flipped through your your new book, and we'll get into the details about that, but I, I do take it as not necessarily being instruction, but more your journaling your expedition into watercolor and paper. Like it's its more that it is a, like you're sharing your experience. Mm. And I, I went on this safari tour and this is what I discovered. And uh, th- then I brought it over here and I did, th- that's what it feels like. And it, it's great that you describe it that way, that that's how you teach. You're teaching kind of your experiences around this rather than you must do this or you must not do this. I mean, some of that's in there to avoid kind of muddy pieces and overworking and things like that. But a lot of it is, look what I can do and look what I found. And yeah, exactly.
1: There are obviously basic rules about painting and, and basic rules about, you know, three-dimensional painting, representative painting. I do try to bring them there, but there's, I mean, there's lots and lots of brilliant art books teaching people to paint out there already. So in a way, my contribution, I hope is that I am writing about what I know and what I have found out. And, trying to save people time by telling them what I found out, so they don't have to spend lots of time
0: trying to find it out. <laughs> do you do any oil painting now?
1: Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh,
0: do you? Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, re- I'll reword this question I was formulating in my head. So at what point did you, did watercolor become the focus for you? Was it what, while you were still working in in the bar? Or like, at what point did you say, I I really... This is my focus, and I'm going to do oil a bit less.
1: Uh, no, it was really um, in that sort of six year after leaving college, sort of basically in the 80s, I was painting, uh, quite a lot of paintings that I did were made into prints. In the 80s, the whole uh, print market in the UK sort of took off with paintings rather than the sort of um, airbrush prints. And I did do a bit of airbrush, actually, which I must say I enjoyed. but it was just a bit of- um, before really getting into the watercolour properly. And I think it was really that impetus that they were hungry for more and more of my watercolours. And that made me more confident with watercolour because I was painting watercolour more often. And I was loving that they were becoming... I was loving that other people were seeing them on their walls, you know, and they weren't having to cost people a fortune because they were made into prints and things. And then the originals obviously would sell... uh, exhibition Um, but there would be other images out there and they were made into cards and you know other things as well and I think that was really when the watercolor took over from the oil painting and then in the 90s I was asked to start writing about them and then asked to do television and it was all watercolor and I had by then realized that there was something that I had Something I had in watercolor, you know. I mean, I don't know what it is to this day. I just know that I love the medium, and somehow it must speak to people. I I, I don't know.
0: When I look at your work, I think that is possibly the best use of watercolor. Like, and I don't know how else to describe it. When I see your work, I'm just thinking. I, I'm flipping through, and it's like I never. To be honest, I look at some of the pieces, and I'm thinking, I never. Even thought that I could do that in watercolor, so it's completely rethinking what I should use as subjects, and I think that's exciting, and that's why I'm going to be really (laughs) recommending people get your 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 current book that's out uh, because I think it's it's incredible, and I want to get to the books, but I I guess I want to understand with all the watercolor and the prints and the work that you were doing, when did it become important for you to share what we talked about earlier, this idea of of others fast tracking a little bit or learning what you've learned when did it become important for you to teach
1: in during the 90s when i was asked to i was asked to do some paintings for somebody else's book and then so as a result i had to sort of analyze rather than synthesize i had to write how you made those paintings and i hadn't done that before and i Enjoyed trying to put it into words, and then I thought, "Oh, I'd really like to write about this more." And so I asked the publisher. I said, "Is there any book? You know, could could I write a book?" And there wasn't something immediately, but thankfully there was. You know, in not too long later, and then they asked me uh, to do so, and uh, I found that I really loved trying to put into words. What was happening on the paper? It was like brushstroke beside brushstroke. It was like word beside word, and they they just tallied. I really, I found, I got a kick out of it.
0: That's what was your first book?
1: The first book that I wrote the words for was called the Encyclopedia of Landscape Techniques.
0: <laughs> that sounds exciting. <laughs>
1: Well, it's, it went into seventeen languages. It was one of those ones where it wasn't a royalty. Unfortunately, it was a it was one where they just pay you out a flat fee. But it went into seventeen languages, and it went and it's still all around the world now. So it would have been rather nice if I'd had royalties. But anyway, it wasn't one of those. And then the next one after that was uh, a, a, the workshop on flowers, um, and then uh, so and then Africa, and uh, and so it went on. Yeah.
0: How many books have you done?
1: <laughs> and I think it's almost, I think it's about 22, I think. I can't, oh. I, I'm not actually, I should have, I, I don't know, <laughs> but it's roughly that, yeah.
0: And do you have some of the works that you can't talk about? It's, it's the, the machine is still going, like, in the sense that you oh, yeah. still need to share?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm, yeah, I mean, I on another one now. But yes, I, I don't know that I'll ever run out of, of things I want to write about because I'm always making paintings. Basically, usually it's because I've been making some paintings that I think, oh, I want to write. I want to, I want to explain to people how. <laughs> um, so the paintings are first, really, and then the book comes about as a result. The next one that's in the works is on, on people and portraits. And it's, this is partly my publisher saying uh, the little books, you know, the little learn quickly books, Mm-hmm. And the one on the ones on people and the one on portraits have outstripped the others big time apparently in terms of sales. And so they said there's obviously a hunger here and I know there is because more people say to me, Oh, show us how to paint people, show us how to that you know, how show us how it is that you can do this. Um, and so I'm writing a bigger book, the same sort of size as Art of the Limited Palette. So that's what's happening uh, in the future. That's what I'm working on now, uh book side. But it's nice, it fits in with my paintings too, because I'm also doing lots of paintings on people. And it's not, it's all media, it's not just watercolor. That
0: one. That's exciting. I was going to ask you, like, it sounds like you can't decouple the books from the art anymore for you. They are one in the same. You couldn't stop either.
1: But, you know, and the truth is, is that that, that what was it I read? It was, a, it was a, a quote, I think it was Oscar Wilde, who said, if there be a split between an art, it be between a man, his art, and his religion, there'd be a split in the man. And I think that basically my art, all my art is one art. In other words, the painting, the writing, the passing it on is all one. It's not separate. There's not a teaching side and a writing side and a painting side. They're all interchanged.
0: Yeah, I think when I talk to artists, I keep reminding them that you're a storyteller. And so part of the storytelling can be in the piece that you're doing, but it's it's fantastic to have the story around it. So when you post a piece, when you share it with others, when you talk about it in a gallery, to share the stories, because these are the things that we latch on Somebody sees your work in someone else's home, it'd be wonderful for the, the owner of that home to say, oh, I have a story about that piece. And it's wonderful with yours, because now the stories of your pieces are in these books. So I think to really enjoy the the work of of Hazel Sone, you really have to, you can buy her art, but you kind of have to buy the books. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 yeah. That's,
0: in, uh, that's incredible. And now you can listen to the podcast too. So there's another bit of storytelling that goes along with all of this as well. Are you always thinking about, I mean, now I guess you are, when you talk about the portraits piece that, you know, if if you're working on 15 pieces now that, well, I have to do, Ten or twelve portraits in order to have content for the book
1: do you know i don't think have to has ever entered my vocabulary okay. uh, the thing is I always want to is first the thing I, you know I, I I just want to make i just want to paint basically that's all I want to do uh, and I always have more material than my books need, which is why there's probably going to always be more books because there's always spare paintings you know there's always more material and one of the things you have to be careful in a book is you don't overcrowd it. You have to, you know, take stuff out if you overcrowd it. And I like to have big pictures in books if possible, and um, so that people can get in close. Because if you can't see the brush marks and you can't see the granulation or whatever, um, then you don't get the full idea. It's very rare that I'm thinking I have to because I always want to. I basically can't right. wait. You know, when I'm writing, when I'm painting. Whatever I'm painting, I can't wait to get up and finish it if it's over more than one day. If, I've, if I'm in the middle of a sort of series of things, I can't wait to be getting on with them. And if I'm writing, it's the same feeling. It's the same. Um, and a day can, you know, I can go, I could be writing a little bit and then suddenly, oh, no, 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 I must, just be, I must paint this. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I, and, and then I'm just painting. You know, it is very seamless, really.
0: I, I absolutely love your joy and enthusiasm for what you do. I'm probably going to say this a few times through the podcast, but I feel like sometimes when I ask you a question, I'm, I'm thinking, I, I, am I too negative? Because you really love what you do, and uh, you really relish all this opportunity, and the fact that you're not to get, you know, you're not going to get to everything. Has there been a point when you've been, you know, beyond, you know, working in a bar and trying to balance all that? Has it ever been a struggle for you?
1: it's always a struggle. Every painting's a struggle. <laughs> but, but, but struggle isn't necessarily negative, is it? I mean, challenge, I would say challenge. Okay. It wouldn't be called an art form if it wasn't challenging. It's got to be a struggle, hasn't it? Because if you can mm-hmm. do it, then why would you keep doing it? You'd do something different, wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, I mean, back to the point about contrast, right? You need that contrast. You need to go from that, you know, for, for something to be wonderful you have to have kind of a base for that and if the struggle is that and it's hard and i'm not going to be able to do this and it's a tough day and how am i going to render this piece and how am i going to do that i always look at life that way that i think if if there's a struggle that's an opportunity that is that you, you just have to take it on because the opportunity to succeed where there's a struggle is really just going to be wonderful because you've got that opportunity. I think if everything was vanilla, yeah. Yeah. there's no room for chocolate in life. Like,
1: oh, And I also think that I think that paintings, I think what they have in them, and this is first they have time in them, which is where they differ from photographs. They've got time. So time is a huge element in something and a very precious element. And then secondly, they have the, anxiety or the joy or the exploration or the excitement or whatever it is that was uh, happening as the artist paints them and so i think watercolors are more are transparent in more ways than one in that they very much you cannot lie if you if there's too much worry or angst the watercolor will put that out and it doesn't usually work too well. It can do, but it's usually better if it's a different medium, if there's going to be a lot of angst in it. I think watercolour benefits from a sort of a, a, a more not a word of is the wrong thing, but it sort of has to be 100% concentration. You've got to put every bit of concentration in and you've got to really be aware of the medium, that you're not harming or hurting the medium, that you are allowing the medium absolutely every possibility of excelling itself so in a way, you're just letting, you're giving it permission or you're letting it not even know that's wrong because it owns you. <laughs> um, it's giving you permission, maybe. But basically, it's about sort of knowing when to dictate terms and when not. I, I, it's sort of like being, well, it is being a, a, it's a, being a creator, isn't it? Is that mm-hmm. you have certain powers and then you want the creation itself to have its own life, and therein, in a way, is the life of the creation.
0: I think that's why I've struggled with watercolor. Coming from graphite, it was very definitive, and it was quite literally black and white. When I went to watercolor, I didn't really figure out the dance until much later, and I feel like it's a bit of a dance with watercolor. It is.
1: It, it, <laughs> you put it on the nail. It is. It is a dance. Yeah. yeah.
0: And sometimes I don't want to dance, and that's why I find watercolor hard. Sometimes is because there's too many other things, that I don't feel like I can dance at that point. Even working with acrylic, I've you can see the tiger over here, over my shoulder. That's an acrylic piece, my first acrylic piece that I'm working on, and even that, I, I don't feel that it, it's it's a it's it's a dance, but it's it's much more defined. It's a louder, um, more definitive step I've got to take versus watercolor, which is a much lighter dance on the paper and. Uh, it's it's fun to see that variation, that contrast once again, right?
1: You've described that perfectly. I think, I and mean, then I would say I'm similar in that when I am painting in oils, it's much more in my head. It's much more logical. Uh, I could take a phone call during it, uh, you know. I could still apply the blue or the red or whatever and, and talk to someone on the phone. But I certainly couldn't talk to anybody while I'm doing a watercolor. I, you know, I must have utter concentration and nothing I want I don't want anything to interrupt me Um, and that's where I would say uh, in a way when when you're trying to show people how you paint is they're never really seeing how you paint because they're there and if they're there uh, they're not really seeing how you paint even though you try to
0: yeah, it's like, what is it, the Heisenberg principle, uh, you know, that you observe, or Schrodinger's cat, right? Like, is the cat, uh, like, it's the same idea with an artist, right? <laughs> is the artist working or not? As yeah. soon as you open the box to ask, or open the door to ask. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: They're not working anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you walked away from pieces? I don't think
1: so. No, I don't think so. No. Well, you mean, you mean abandoned? Or, or... Yes. Oh, oh, I've probably... Yes, I've abandoned things that were where I've overworked it and I know it's not going to work. I mean, basically, the beauty of watercolour paper it is just paper, even though it's very expensive paper. Yeah. Um, and it, so it is easy to toss it aside and paint on the back um, or later cover it with gesso and use it as a base for oil painting. You don't yeah. have to waste any of them. So, yes, I ha- Yeah, I mean, like, I've, got, I've got shelves full of watercolours that no one will ever see
0: but you're happy you did though because it brought you to today right oh
1: yeah i love i mean the yes. single watercolor that i haven't enjoyed painting
0: that's wonderful you you should if you could can that enthusiasm you have i would buy a container every week it's just wonderful to hear this uh, with someone who's been wrapped up in in watercolor and art uh, for so long that uh, it's it still inspires you to do more and to share more i think that's it sounds like I'm ending the show, but I just wanted to say thank you for sharing this enthusiasm. I think it's incredible. Now, the artist listening right now, the person who wants to play with watercolor, you know, one of their thoughts is, well, how does Hazel do it? Like, what tools are you using? So maybe we can explore and talk a little bit about that. I, I have to do that in, in understanding, like, what is your preferred paper? What size do you typically work in? And then we can go and delve into the paints.
1: Yeah, I think this is important, actually, because I, I think that watercolor is one of those – one of those things where you can blame your tools if they're <laughs> bad because there's no doubt that artist quality brushes, paints, and paper make better watercolors because, well, it may, you started with brushes. What did you just ask? Uh, with with paper. paper. Paper, right, paper. So first of all, all good watercolor paper is good, whatever the surface, and will give you a different look. The wet in wet Kind of work that I love doing uh, is mostly done on rough 100% cotton paper, Saunders Waterford being the main uh, supplier that I use. I like Arsh paper as well, but I do, the the Saunders Waterford have a, a slightly softer tooth. So sometimes I will think, oh, this would suit Arsh, and mostly I will think this will suit Saunders Waterford. I also love cardi paper, which is spelled K H A D I, which I think means cardi in, in, in cotton in uh, India or something like that. And that is a long fiber cotton paper, which is ideal for me in Africa because it takes uh, when it's wet, or when it, it takes longer for the uh, water to evaporate because the fibers of cotton are longer. So when the when the paint's in there, it's evaporating slightly slower than on a, a shorter fiber. Hmm. I do like hot press paper. I don't often use hot press paper. But I do like working on hot press. Uh, and I actually, in a way, will work on anything, you know, sketchbook papers as well. But I, I just love, I really love good paper. Sometimes I've still got some papers I bought when I was young that were handmade, and I still haven't used them because they're, t- they're still too good for me to use. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to sully them with the wrong, you know. I, I, want, I will at some point, I'll have to. I'll have to use them. But they're just so perfect in themselves. They're so perfect as white paper that I'm afraid that if I make a mark on them, I will ruin them.
0: (laughs) You know, I would agree. When I first got into watercolor, I I was like, oh, this is rough and this is smooth. I could tell immediately, you know, everyone could figure out what, what the difference is between a hot and a cold press. And it wasn't until I started using some of the cold press and then trying different varieties that you really, you can start to feel the texture and when you find a good paper, it is exciting to the touch. Like you almost end up with too much oil on the paper because you're just rubbing it and it feels just like it's, it is, it's just ready. Like it's, it's ready for what's next. It's it's a wonderful feeling.
1: Well, I'm actually, I'm a very good girl because I don't, I I love touching the edge of the paper, but I will (laughs) never, ever touch anywhere near the middle. And I, I, if I see, if I say taking a workshop and someone touches the middle of their paper with their hand, I think, you know, I, I feel like Saying, no, no, don't! You do do go, no, no, don't do that. Because you you mustn't put the grease on. Because you're right. Um, but uh, yes, I mean the paper is so beautiful, and I do love sort of feeling the edge. But in truth, I think I like feeling it through the brush more than I like feeling it through my fingers. Mm-hmm. I just love stroking, you know, the brush across the paper and seeing it deliver its load.
0: Yeah, it's uh it is a wonderful experience. It's more challenging on a hot press when you've got that little puddle and you gotta direct it a little bit and keep it over here and yeah. That's uh that's
1: gorgeous. It's You gorgeous. Can see that yes. of the paint and then you see it darkening in one corner and yeah. lighter in another and you're just thinking, Oh, please, please dry just like that. You don't think it's on your knees, you think don't jog it, don't jog it, oh don't no, oh no, <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's exactly, exactly the feeling. Um, and sometimes it works brilliantly. It's like, oh, that was. And that's why I say when I look back at a piece, I see those areas on the artwork that it's like, I remember. I remember when that happened. It it wasn't exactly like I planned, but it's better. Like the way that that fell was brilliant.
1: Yeah, you do actually, you do remember. I mean, bizarrely, you remember in, in certain brushstrokes, don't you? You you remember the experience yeah. of the brushstroke and that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about because I think we're going to get heavy into paints <laughs> brushes are is there like a set few or do you work amongst many or uh, and, and maybe before you because I think this will impact the brush that you're using, what size are your typical pieces? Do they vary a lot or is there a typical size?
1: There is no typical size. I don't often go larger than a meter by seventy five uh, centimeters, but are you inch? no you're centimeters aren't you, are you uh,
0: uh, we're centimeters, the listeners will convert, it's okay. <laughs> okay. okay, well,
1: um, but I work tiny, and I work up to that size, really. A lot of my pictures are sort of imperial size, 22 by 30 inches. I have some sketch blocks that sawn, that are made with sawns of waterproof paper that are made uh, in, sort of with my name on, which means I use them a lot because they've got the paper I like using. And, nice. Uh, yeah, and they are in uh, four sizes, so um, half imperial, half uh, imperial, well, Quarter Imperial, Sixth Imperial, and Eighth Imperial. So I tend to use those a lot because you know, they've got my elephants on the front. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, actually, I wish in a way that I did uh, have more sort of standard sizes because that would be helpful when you're reusing frames. But yes. uh, sadly, I don't. So I, I always seem to end up having to, I always seem to have loads of different frames and different sizes.
0: Based on that, then what kind of brushes are you using? What is your go to brush? Is there a type?
1: I'm very much a lover of sable brushes, but I'm also well aware that things are changing ethically, and so I am looking into imitation sable. I haven't yet found something that I love, um, so I am still using natural hair. I do like um, all natural hair brushes, and you know, including in oils, I prefer you know the bristle brushes, and I do like. Um, I just I like the spring and the bounce of natural hair, but I do realise that this may be something that changes in the near future. And I'm happy that there are manufacturers, you know, trying to find, trying to find ways of making imitation hair. But the, the beauty of natural hair is it has barbs in. So basically, when you hold plenty of paint, plenty of water paint, whereas nylon strands are just long, slippery strands. And so if you hold them up they will water will drip out whereas if you've got a natural hair brush then it will only release that paint when you say so when you put the pressure down And that gives you control and what you need when you're trying to deliver watercolor to paper in in a way that in a certain you know the way you want to direct to some extent is you need control and so i will continue to use my sable brushes and they will last a lifetime anyway. So um, mm-hmm. you know, they don't, They don't. They, sometimes the ends wear a little bit, but you know, you can wedge it. If it's not a tip, then you just wedge it, you know, in the palette and make a tip, you know, a, a long side tip, <laughs> like a screwdriver <laughs> tip. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I doubt I will need to buy many more brushes. You know, I've got so many brushes. Um, I love, I do love buying a new brush because I love having a new beautiful <laughs> candelabra tip. But In truth, I could probably manage the rest of my life with all the brushes I've got.
0: And so is there a type, like are you using a pointed round most of the time? Do you have a dagger that you, a liner, like do you have a set two or three that you use regularly?
1: Um, I use basically a a size, I I find the one I use the most is the size eight and the ten round. But sizes are not standard nowadays, so that somebody might be much smaller than what I'm using. Uh, These sizes are made by the uh, SAA. Uh, these brushes, rather, are made by the SAA that I use on a regular basis because they made me... When I, when I was making doing the television making films and DVDs, people obviously wanted to be able to buy materials that I was using and hazel sewn sort of sets. So I asked the SAA if they would uh, put together a set that was under £100 because sables are expensive. And they did. They put together a tw- uh, 14, a 12, a 10, an 8, a 6, and a rigger and a flat for me. And... No, I lie. There wasn't a 14 in there. It was a, the six. And it was under £100. It isn't now. Now it's gone over. But uh, it enabled me to be able to say to people if they were, you know, wanting to take up watercolour, well, here, for under £100, you can have brushes just like I use. And you won't need any others than these. And that's what I still am using. I use, you know, and I, the flat brush. I love the flat brush as well. Use a lot of flat brush, a lot. And I don't use any of those fancy shapes. Although, having said that, today, I actually went and bought a fan brush. Not oh, wow. hesitate to say to make any kind of grass mark ever. <laughs> but I saw somebody – I was on Watercolour Live, which went out in uh, January. And I saw somebody use it to do a a, di- a, a horizontal mark where it broke into sort of lines – and it was just lovely the way this mark it was on the side of a roof or something like that. But I thought, wow, I really like that. And I thought, I can't do that with my flat brush because it won't divide like that. So today I went and, and bought it. I, don't th- I haven't had a chance to use it yet. And I don't think I've bought the right size, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted. Um, but I like experimenting with things. And so I, I think you were talking about a liner. Is that like a reservoir brush?
0: Uh, so a liner would be like a rigger.
1: Oh, a rigger. I use a rigger a lot. A rigger. Okay. Yeah. yeah. My, my standard brushes are the round brushes. Um, and the 10 is probably the most used and the 8. And then I have a 12 as well, which I use a lot. And then the 6 I don't use very much. And the rigger I don't use very much. But I use the rigger more than the 6. I don't. I hardly ever use a 6. I don't use small brushes because I like to have the tip from a larger brush, really.
0: Right. With the reservoir.
1: Yeah. And I like mops as well. I like the freedom of a mop. And I like my flat brush, which is about an inch wide, 19 millimeters, I think. And I don't really use smaller flats. Hmm. That's about it.
0: Before we get into the paint, I just want to remind the listener that everything that Hazel's talked about, everything that we've talked about where I could link to whether it's a person, a product, a place, a thing, uh, I will link to it in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and you're on a commute or out for a a run or a drive or you're painting or drawing, uh, the notes will be there uh, when you need them. So please check them out. Uh, I always get comments. People love the notes. There's so much there. So anything that we talk about is going to be there. So I just wanted to, to mention that before we get into the paints. And so, Hazel, you've You talk about paint a lot in color theory, and we won't have enough time to get into this too deep, but uh, when it comes to paints, my feeling for someone who hasn't done a whole lot of watercolor is the paper is probably the most important to me, and then the paints, you know, when you get to the good paints, there's a lot of good paints, but I'm wondering for you, what paint do you enjoy using, and then we can talk about your palette. And the limited palette.
1: I started, uh, when I started out, uh, and and obviously different countries have different main brands, but I started out with Lindsay Newton. And I liked them very much. And I remember quite early on, uh, when I started writing books, I was asked to do a blind test of a whole load of uh, uh, artist quality paints from different brands from all around the world. And so I didn't know what they all were. And somewhat bizarrely, although I'm wondering if it was because I already used them, uh, I ended up liking the Winsor Newton the best. Now, I was trying to be really, really, you know, really, really objective about everything. And it was to do with quick yield. It was to do with drying once you've squeezed it out so you can put your palette away. It was, you know, all the things you need to make a practical paint, not just the quality of the uh, actual hue or the, what, you know, whatever it was, its property was. But, I now use uh, so for many years. I use Winter and Newton, and they're a fine. I mean, all the brands, as you say, all the brands are fine. All the artist quality. It's a waste of money to buy student quality because it's all just filled out with calcium carbonate or something. Mm. And what you want is the pigment you want, and it you won't it won't cost you any more in the long run because you'll use less paint. So it is a complete economic misnomer or whatever to buy cheaper paint because. It will go fast and it won't do the job. Whereas expensive paint lasts a long time. I mean, you might you could buy cadmium red at the age of sixty and never use it up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so now I use Schmincke, with whom and I love their colours. They approached me, and and uh, the time when Winsor and Newton made their packaging. Their writing was so small you couldn't see it, and I, got, I thought, you know given that most of your buyers are probably over 50 and eyesight is starting to go, you know they can't read what they are. and it really actually annoyed me, so I was a bit cross with them. and at that time, um, when I was making a lot of the films with the SAA, uh, Schmink uh, said, "You know would, would you like to use our colors?" And I absolutely love them. They were beautiful. It took a while interestingly, to get used to some of the ones that are slightly different. It made me realize just how familiarity with colours is important. You know, once you've got some you like, swapping and changing isn't necessarily in your interest. Even if, you know, Hazelstone says, buy Schmincke. Uh, if you already got your Daniel Smiths or your Windsor Newtons, you know, stay, your familiarity matters a lot. Knowing what your colour is going to do is really important because the pigments they're all using are similar and they're all good manufacturers. But, you know, I I now am, you know, hugely happy with my... I, I do have some Winsor Newton still in my palette, um, but they are otherwise all Schmincke and all artist quality and mostly large pans because then you can get your brush into them. If you only go for half pans, then it's quite different. Now, I've got half pans for things like cadmium red, uh, and crimson colours that you're not taking masses of. Well, I'm not, I'm not taking masses of, uh, you know, on a regular basis But for things like ultramarine Blue, Prussian Blue, Yellow Ochre, all those, it's very, it's much better to have a full pan because then you can, if you've got a big brush, you can get lots of paint out. But also if you want to keep one side of the pan clean and the other side grubby, because you mustn't get, um, what's the word? You mustn't get picky about not rubbing it. You must grubby your paints. And so you're because otherwise you can't mix. If you start thinking, I can't take that colour, I've got blue on my brush and I can't go into the yellow. You you mustn't think like that. Basically, you've got to mix those colours and they've got to be drawn out of the pan. They've got to be put on the palette and mixed. And so you can't be afraid of muddy, of of not muddying, of grubbing your colours with another pigment. You can clean it off easily. If they're good quality pigments, they will dry with a nice hard top and then it's very easy to use a damp, brush to just take off that solid pigment.
0: I would agree. I haven't used a whole lot of Windsor Newton and the only schminke I've bought is the super granulating that they have now. I think it's called super granulating that is that is wacky stuff like that is just wonderful paint to play with uh i think i got three tubes of it and uh it is crazy what that can do that is exciting
1: yeah. <laughs> now interestingly you should mention that because yeah, i think most watercolors love granulation because it's lovely isn't it seeing paint sort of <laughs> sit in the tooth of the paper and uh, it's a lovely attribute of watercolor and I, because I am very much in favor of single pigments so that you don't end up mixing too many pigments on your palette, because basically pigment mixing leads to darkness. That's its physical nature. And so that means it leads to mud eventually, as you can see in your rinsing pot very clearly when you rinse off your brushes. So with the super granulating colors, I actually asked them to send me the constituent colors of each super granulating color they wanted me to try. Because I wanted to be able to just use those three colours individually if I needed to to make the painting. In other words, to make sure I wasn't using too many colours in the painting. And so I would use the super granulating colour when I wanted the three mixed together, but I used them individually as well. And in the book you've just got, the Art of the Limited Palette, there's a painting of some uh, horses on a beach. I think it's manganese violet. Uh, now I'm just trying to think what the colours are. Anyway, it's not far into the book. I can't, I can't even think what the name of the painting is. This is terrible. But anyway, it's granulating colours, and it's in the section on granulation there. And it was painted with both the super granulating colour, which I can't now remember the name of at this moment either, which is terrible, isn't it? Uh, and the three, but it was painted with the three constituent colours of that colour um, as well. And so that to me made much more sense of the super granulating colours because. Yes, they're wonderful, and they're gorgeous, and they're, they're, they're really pleasing. People are really enjoying them. But I like to know that if, if you, say, mix two of those together, you've got six pigments because they're nearly all three pigment colors. And if you mix three of them together, you've got nine pigments. Well, there is danger in nine pigments.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's coffee. <laughs> so is that the sound of the sand?
1: Oh, yes, it is. Well done. Okay, That's the one. Okay.
0: And so I'll I'll just read from the book here. So this is, um, so because this is what we're going to talk about next is this book. Cobalt cerulean, uh, raw umber, and manganese violet.
1: Right. And now they will be one of those granulating colors. And I'm trying to think if it's glacial. If you go further into the book, there's a man in a turban. And this is in the second half of the book.
0: Uh, The camel trader. Yes. Super granulation colors. So, glacier turquoise, tundra orange, and galaxy violet.
1: Right. Must be galaxy violet. I think that is the the sound of the uh,
0: the sound of the sand. But it's 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 good to see that you're playing. Like when I saw these in the in the local art store, the super granulating from schmika, I thought this is a gimmick. Like it just strikes me as being odd. And and uh, you know they know me there. It almost feel like going into Cheers, like Norm, like uh, they know who I am when I walk in now. And she's like, you know, you have to try these, like they're exciting. So I got I think two or three tubes, and I did. And it was like, oh, it feels like I'm going to oils, like they're so different from what I normally use. It's like, a, do I have to buy all of these now? Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to do. But they are exciting, and it's not just a gimmick. It is, yeah. and, and maybe cheerpoint point, you can use them as is. But the thoughtful point about. Understanding the pigments in each of them and being able to render those out yourself and kind of home bake your own version of that, I think is exciting too.
1: Well, it means that in your painting, if you use the constituent pigments on their own, you're going to end up with a much more vibrant color because basically colors interact with each other. So say they've got three pigments in there. When the turquoisey color separates from the yellowy color, separates from the reddy color, Mm -hmm. then if you've got those as their separate colors on their own, they're going to, you know, vibrate with each other. Like you said, right at the beginning, people are not, I know you didn't say it, it was before we were talking. <laughs> but it's basically that just it, the contrast between things that make you recognize things, that make you see things.
0: So I kind of want to lead into this book. So this is this book is The Art of the Limited Palette. It's available, uh, I got it on Amazon in a day, which is, which is wonderful to get art stuff in a day. So that's that's fantastic. It is a beautiful hardcover book uh, with a beautiful painting on the front of it. I, I got partway through this. And I honestly think that if you can hear my voice and you work with watercolor, you have to buy this book because it puts things in perspective. I'm a person who has no art training. I started in my 40s. And for me, this book speaks a lot of the language I've been hearing others speak about. So when you talk about opacity and transparency, uh, granulation, lifting off the paint, you know, the, the harmony of colors, so when you talk about limited palette, it's a limited palette for that piece. It doesn't mean you have to walk around with six colors or three colors, it's for that piece. And so this kind of approach to it makes me rethink some of the pieces I'm working on, and... I think you can look back at some of the watercolors and realize you've already done it. You've already done a piece with limited limited palette of three or four. So you've already been successful. And I think this opportunity with this book is is to be more intentional in doing it. And Hazel, I kind of want to start with, why did you write this book?
1: Right. This is a good question because I wrote it knowing it was going to be really hard to write because it's very hard to put into words concepts. It's easier to write, you know, how to paint portraits. When I started to understand the properties of pigments, I it was like an epiphany. It was like revelation because I suddenly understood that it wasn't about the hue. And I didn't know that early on. When I started painting watercolor, I didn't know about the properties of the pigment. I was just using the colors. And as I began to learn that each different color had different properties as well as different hue, but it was the properties that mattered more than the hue. I fell in love with the medium, even more. I, I just I think my sort of natural sort of love of science from when I was young and at school, suddenly the two married suddenly I realized that art i'd always thought that art and science were but I never thought they were separate disciplines. I always thought they were one, and suddenly, I saw that watercolor was science on paper. Here was diffusion of pigments you know, that are suspended, in you know, micro micro particles suspended in, in gum Arabic, floating about on the paper. And then you can send some others in to meet them. And then you can send a bit of water in, which will push them out of the way. And all you're doing is basically using physics and chemistry. And suddenly, the, it, I, it just, I just fell in love with the medium even more. And basically, I, it just seemed more magical, you know, even though now in a way it was more logical, it was now more magical. And I, I started wanting to share it, really, and found that whenever I was um, doing a, a workshop or talking to somebody, it was always this that was coming up, you know, about the properties of these colors. And I start, I wrote Watercolor Rainbow, which I think in, in, in North America is called something like Color Studio, Watercolors, Their Pigments and Properties, or something like that. And that was the beginning of it, which was basically the 35 colors that I use on a semi regular basis. Not, not all of them are regular, but the 35 colors that I mainly use and, and describing them all and how they are used. So, this, so that book was the start of it. And then I realized that actually you can't talk about the colors individually. It's always to do with them in combination, which is what the art of the limited palette is about. It's basically about how and why you would put colors in combination together. And so the the, the the second half of the book takes individual paintings and says, and why I chose those colors and tries. It, it was actually really hard to raise, really hard to analyze something that effectively is a synthesis. It's really hard, but I did it.
0: <laughs> I have questions about the book, but I wanted to ask you that at a high level, you know, you're in doing all of the books you've done and I, and obviously with this one, you're talking about it as well, where you're, you're being the artist, but also you're being the critique and, the, and the, um, the knowledge container about how you've done it, right? So you've got to store this knowledge so that you can share it. Do you think that's impacting how you paint? Do you think it's, it's, it's changed or modified either how you do it or the subjects that you've chosen?
1: Uh, not the subjects, but i tell you what it does do is that if you analyze too much what you do, you can lose your spontaneity you can lose lose your sort of normal sort of flow and so i have noticed that if for ex- it's not so much when i'm writing about it because i can stop and start you know i can write just a bit and then carry on painting so it's but if you're physically for example if i do painting holidays and you're with people for several days and therefore, you are. And the people are asking you, and you're analyzing how you did this, how you did that, and what the colors are, et cetera, et cetera, and why you used them. I noticed that after about six days, I find it harder to paint without having to think. To, I find it harder to paint naturally, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So in answer to your question I think the answer was yes.
0: I think that's that's hitting all of us different well in the same way but different. I mean it's hitting you because you're you're doing your piece. Uh, I think it hits people who are and, and you you're on Instagram as well. People that you know do a work and post it and talk about it and post it and and they're focused more on the production and feeding social media and it can get to a point where you're focused too much on feeding Instagram and feeding YouTube and, and everything else, that you lose yourself. You you lose that spontaneity, that that experience of just drawing or painting, whether it's oil or watercolour or something else. And uh, I think it can be a struggle. I think, you know, we gain a lot by you doing these books. <laughs> so well,
1: uh, I don't think I'm in danger because basically I'm in sort of control of that. Remember when I was doing the paintings which were going into print a lot in the 80s and 90s, there was one artist who, uh, because he was so popular and he was selling so many and the demand was so much, he actually sort of burned out with having to do the same similar thing. And I remember watching that and thinking, oh, no, I am never going to allow myself to have to do something. If I don't want to do it, I am going to stop. I, I will not paint anything that I'm not in love with doing. And I... I think that was good advice to myself. When I am, for example, teaching people, I'm doing it because I love telling them and showing them. If I would stop it, then I will say something probably like, you know, well, do you mind if I don't talk while I paint this or, or something? That like, you know, basically, I, I can control my own. Well, I suppose it's my own creativity, isn't it? I suppose, um, mm-hmm. but basically, I'm a, I'm very I'm so aware of that. I'm so aware. I remember also uh, in the early days when I was doing the television. Uh, People would say, you know, well, you, you're at a watershed now, you know, you're going to be doing more teaching than you are painting. And I said, uh, that's not going to work for me because it's painting that feeds me. It's painting I love. It's, I just want to paint every day. I love passing it on. But if it ever means that I'm not getting enough painting done, then sorry, I, it's the teaching that's going to have to go because it's the painting that is the important thing for me. So I, the balance, I, you know, I'm quite careful about the number of days a year that I. I teach, I have a limit of the number of days that I'm going to be doing. That It's different with the books because books, as you say, it's in my own studio. So they're done in tandem. You know, I can be painting for six hours and I might write for six hours or something, you know, but, you know, I can go in and out between the two. Or I might write for an hour and paint for six hours or, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you're not going to be doing, like, you've got a workshop coming up in uh, in Florence you know, you're not going to be doing 12 of those in a year because that pulls you away from doing everything, right?
1: Exactly, yes. So so basically, I I have been very careful to make sure that I don't, um, and and likewise with the social media thing, I was a bit hesitant even because I didn't sort of want the pressure of having to put stuff out on a regular basis. And I, I tend to just do it once a week. But actually, I found I really like writing afterwards. I don't ever know, I don't ever know, before I don't plan what I'm gonna put out basically. What happens is I think, oh help, it's the weekend. I've got to do something. <laughs> I think, oh, oh, what am I is it something I've painted this week? Oh what would be nice to say you know and I or I tie it in with something like if I'm promoting a holiday and I want to let people know about it. But um right. I keep it fun you know, I keep make sure it's fun for me. I make sure there's no if there's ever going to be what I do not want is to not be in love with what I'm doing. I want to love every single day. Yeah, I saw my life as one life, you know, just painting. I love travel, so it had to include travel. And I tried to keep it like that.
0: For someone who, you know, and I would recommend any, any artist working in watercolor to consider this book beginner, intermediate, probably advanced as well, because it may cause you to look at things differently. What kind of two or three things do you think people should come away with? What, what do you think they should? Um, what are the things that you think are really valuable that people need to explore that's inside this book?
1: Oh, well, I think one of the beauties of a book is that you can have more than two or three things because you can keep going back to it. <laughs> oh,
0: oh well, there's lots in here too. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, I would be sad if it was only two or three things. I
0: <laughs>
1: but I, the first thing I want people to know is that a limited palette is not a restriction. It's a freedom. You're not, it's not a limitation. It's the opposite. Because basically what you're doing is you're allowing colors to do what colors can do best. And you're freeing up your mind to concentrate on tone and speed. It's actually efficient painting in a sense, but it is actually freeing. And I think that when I sort of realized and understood how pigments work, I think it was a revelation when I sort of, I have this phrase that I always, I I read, and I think it was in a book from the 50s, and it said, pigment mixing tends to darkness. And I, that has stayed with me, that quote, because it's that tends to, in other words, that's where it's always leading. The whole point about subtractive mixing is that you're losing the light. You know, the rainbow, that those colours of light, they all go together and they make white light, they make light. So they're all right, they're free. <laughs> but we have to deal with pigment and pigment by its very nature, as you add each pigment to another pigment is going towards darkness, eventually to the black of Coal and oil and the stuff all down in the bottom of the earth that's been squidged together. <laughs> We're very, very lucky in this generation because we now have all these amazing new colours like the quinacridones and perulines and indenthrines, all these colours that have come out of the oil industry. So we've got a whole load of stuff that Turner never had, a whole load of stuff that copman never had. I mean, Winslow Homer didn't have any of these. You know, it, we are so, so lucky. But in a way, it means we've got too many colours. I wouldn't. I advocate having less colors. I love this. I love it being part of this time.
0: It's a really good point. I mean, it, in some ways, this book is—is is, you know, it could be the unlimited creativity found in the limited palette, right? Like, it's uh, it re- really is liberating that way. And I think you know, for me, like once again, not have a formal training. Like your whole conversation that you have in here about understanding the difference between a staining and a granulating kind of experience with the paint was something I hadn't. I think I knew about it but I really hadn't thought about it. And so I think that's what's interesting about this book is some of this is going to be seem really familiar but the way you phrase it gives me pause and I think the next time I do watercolor I'm going to be thinking about what's going into the fibers of the the, the, the cotton and what is what granulars are dancing in between the peaks and and and, and so Maybe if you can maybe just explain that for the listener, just to kind of give them a bit of a teaser about that idea of the granulation and the staining, and some examples of paints that do that.
1: Yes, basically, uh, colours divide into staining colours and lifting colours. So, a staining colour is a colour that literally stains the fabric of the paper. So, in cotton paper, it is going into the actual cotton fabric. A lifting colour, and most of the granulating colours are lifting colours. Sits between the uh, cotton fibre, so it sits in the tooth of the paper or on the paper. Now, lots of colours run in between that, so you have semi-staining and semi-non-staining, so to speak. And it's shown as a triangular symbol, so it's um, you know clear on the on the uh, on the um, tubes, you know which where where it lies. But basically, the beauty of a staining colour means that when you lay it. You can't be shifted because it has stained the fabric of the paper. So now you can do you know, other washes across it completely. You, know, you, you can build up lots of lovely thin layers of things. Now, you can do that with the lifting colors and the granulating colors, but they are in danger of being shifted if you rub your brush across them or use too much uh, water too often or, or shift the pigment about because the pigments can still those particles those tiny particles of pigment can be shifted on the paper and so you could run into danger of muddying your color or pushing it into corners so if you know basically there are so many choices of different property for colors that are similar so you can choose a blue that suits the purpose that you want to do it. So in other words, instead of looking for the matching the hue to the sky, you think, oh, my goodness, I've got no chance of getting these white clouds in in this sky. So I need a lifting color so that I can get them out of this blue sky. So you would go for a lifting blue like an ultramarine blue or a cobalt blue. If you used a Prussian blue or a thalo blue, those are staining colors. So basically, you've got no chance of getting your clouds out. They are gone. <laughs> but yeah. it doesn't mean either is wrong or right. It just means you pick the color that is going to give you the most um, useful property for what you need. So uh, often, for example, with portraiture, I will use ultramarine blue over uh, a staining blue like Prussian or thalo. Because I think I might get the eyes in the wrong place, and I might want to have to move them a bit, and so I need to know I can shift that color. So I will use a lifting blue like ultramarine, knowing that therefore I can even rub it off with a sponge if I have to, and I can move, you know, move an eye up or down, you know, even sort of a centimeter or so, or whatever, it, you know, the size of proportion of the painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I I call the lifting colours safety colours or or kind colours because they they give you the chance to lift them. And there are lots of them, you know, most of the earth colours, not yellow ochre, but most of the others are lifting colours. So burnt sienna and ultramarine blue. I I remember doing a a DVD of a jackal uh, for African watercolour DVD and I had a cameraman filming it and I painted this in ultramarine blue and I think a little bit of yellow ochre and uh, burnt sienna. And then I said, and of course, these are lifting colors, so we can take them all off. And then I got a sponge and I wiped it off completely, totally disappeared. And then I thought, help did he film it? Did he film it? Oh, have I lost it? <laughs> the annoying thing was, it had come out really nicely as well. It was against my whole sort of, I didn't want to even take it off, but I had to because we were filming about lifting colours. Uh, anyway, luckily he did film it. But it, it came away completely. And uh, when I, if I demonstrate that to people, they say, wow, I didn't, I didn't realise. I thought, you know, it was, I thought watercolour was so unforgiving, you can't move it. But if that had been painted with Prussian blue, and um, let's think of a staining brown, uh, say brown madder, then uh, it wouldn't, it, you know, it wouldn't have been able to be shifted. You, you know, you want to use staining colours as well because they have edges that look lovely under things. So you might want to use something like aureolin under uh, some green trees because the edge of the aureolin will never disappear. It can't be lost because it's a stain, you know, it's stained it. So it, they, all these colours have, Uses, you know, there isn't a single color that isn't useful at some point.
0: So, the artist that's listening to this and may have a few hundred colors, it's okay.
1: (laughs) I think one of the things that nearly every painter and certainly watercolorists do is they go into art shops and they just fall in love with tubes of color more so than pans, even. I think tubes of color are just so yummy, especially if they're small because they're sort of cute. And so, you can't help but keep buying and buying and buying tubes of color, and in a way. It's nice that we love our materials so much, you know, but it sometimes means you've got too many and then you get muddled as to what to use. Whereas you, familiarity is definitely a way of uh, getting to know the properties of the colours that you use on a regular basis. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't experiment as well, because otherwise you won't find out that there's others that you might get on better with or find that they do something more for <laughs>
0: You know, this is once again maybe something somebody who's exploring watercolor may think, oh, it's something else I've got to think about. It's stressful. You know, maybe, you know, we talked before we started recording that you've got a a beautiful palette. We're going to get a picture of that to show people what it looks like. So you'll have to check the show notes out for that link. So we're getting a picture of your, your palette, your actual working palette. And I think you mentioned somewhere i saw that you you typically work with 20 to 30 colors and but not per painting right that's kind of your scope of your work i'm curious about what colors you lean on a lot like i'm there's a few that i always go to just based on the subjects i'm using but i'm wondering like you talked about ultramarine blue versus prussian and then you've talked about cerulean that you've used in here so and and the book goes into heavy detail about the warm and the cool with regard to your your blues yellows and reds but I'm wondering for you, like, are, are there a few colors that you hang your hat on? If somebody wants to get into this and explore the idea of a limited palette, what, what groupings do you really like?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. Because if you're going to uh, travel with a, a palette, like, you know, I, I'm traveling a lot with a palette, you can't carry everything. In the studio, you can have as many colors as you want, and so you can switch and swatch between your color sets. But yes, basically, I have a basic set of a warm and a cool because temperature of your colours is very important, a warm and a cool yellow, a warm and a cool red, a warm and a cool blue, and then some earths. So my basic underline of palette that over the years has, has satisfied me greatly is aureolin for my cool yellow, Indian yellow for my warm yellow, and Indian yellow is nowadays not made from uh, the uh, cows you know fed on mangoes urine uh, the urine from the cows fed on mangoes wow,
0: I didn't know that okay well few <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: and uh, then my reds would be uh, my cool red would be a crimson or permanent rose uh, which in schminka is called ruby red. But in Africa, Elizabeth Crimson is fine because there's not huge amounts of pinks around. But in Europe, I would definitely have the Permanent Rose, and in portraiture, I would have the Permanent Rose, uh, and then my and, and Cadmium Red would be my hot red. I absolutely am passionate about Cadmium Red, and I have tried, you know, the things that the versions of Windsor Red and, and the other Reds made. You know, they're supposed to sort of be the replacements. I can't find anything that. Equals cadmium red. I have a pot of the pigment in my studio. And if ever I feel down, I just go and look in it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful.
1: And uh, my blues are then ultramarine blue finest, which is the green shade of ultramarine. And I'll explain about ultramarine. Ultramarine uh, came originally from lapis lazuli, the color. And it was a very expensive color. Hence, it was used to paint the Virgin's robe in the Renaissance times, because obviously she was the most important uh, figure and you use the most valuable color. And so in the, I think it was 19th century, uh, the paint manufacturers put out a competition to try and make a cheaper version of ultramarine. And only the French and Germans apparently entered this uh, competition. And the French won. Hence, we end up with French ultramarine as the name. Interesting. But the French ultramarine is the red shade of ultramarine. Lapis lazuli had two different uh, refractions, one to green light and one to red light. And so the ultramarine, all the good paint manufacturers make these two versions now. So uh, Schmincke, for example, is ultramarine blue and ultramarine finest. And the finest, the the tinier particles, I think it's something like 20 microns as opposed to 40 microns, but don't quote me because I don't know about the actual manufacturer. The, the, t- the smaller particles are the ones that go to green, and the larger particles go to red. So, French ultramarine, which is the red shade, is the more granulating of the two hmm. because it's got the bigger particles. So, it all makes sense once you understand, as yes. so you begin to know why and how they work. So, those are my base, and then uh, Prussian blue is my cold blue. I discovered Prussian uh, first in oils and got it all over everything. and thought it was the most hateful color on earth because it just, it just stained everything. And I didn't think I'd ever use it again. And then I discovered it in watercolor and I fell in love with it because it can be as light as the color of air and as dense as the color of the deepest sea or the deepest, like nearly indigo. And for me to have a color like that, a cool blue like that, that can go from that range with such subtlety. And it's nearly in almost every brand, the color is pretty much identical. I haven't often found a brand where the Prussian blue isn't the same. Maybe I shouldn't say that because I pointed them back. I'm sure there's one. But, anyway. but basically, so those, those six colors satisfy. If I had nothing else, I could probably paint everything with those six and wouldn't need anything else. But then I love having my earths. I am a lover of yellow ochre because of Africa, probably. Uh, lots of English artists prefer raw sienna. It's probably a better color to use in the English landscape. Uh, But yellow ochre certainly has suited me very much in Africa. And then burnt sienna is a must. You know, I think every single person in every palette must have burnt sienna, basically, because it's just, you know, if you don't want a red, it's a red. (laughs) So it's uh, it's perfect. Um, And again, that can come slightly different in different brands. And so that one, I would say, find one where you really feel the color marries with whatever you're mixing for example if i am trying to mix a black quickly i'm not really going to want to mix three colors to make that black which obviously red yellow and blue not obviously but if you know bit of color theory then obviously mm-hmm. red yellow and blue are mixed together to make uh, the darks the blacks the browns the grays and so but in your when you're painting you know sometimes three colors is too many it's too it's too slow a mix And because we, you know, have our choice of colors, this is what I tried to get across in the limited palette is that, you know, don't just think triads because sometimes it's a duet that's going to work. So, for example, ultramarine green shade, so ultramarine finest in Schmincke and burnt sienna are going to make a brilliant black because the red of the burnt sienna and the green of the green shade blue Mm -hmm. are, are opposite colors. So they're going to make a deeper black. If you were mixing French ultramarine with burnt sienna, the French ultramarine is the red shade of ultramarine. And so if you mix that with the burnt sienna, you haven't got enough green in there for it to go to black. So then if you were going to try and make a quick black with your ultramarine blue, you'd need something like burnt umber, which is a greener brown than burnt sienna. So if you know just a little bit about some of these colors, it makes your mixing quick, efficient and vibrant.
0: I'm going to have to rethink things all over again. <laughs> but I think this is good. I've I've never really explored this part of watercolor, except that I see this color here. I'm going to try and replicate it here. I'm not really thinking that deep. And I, I appreciate what this book has triggered in my mind. I'm going to probably go through this two or three times. This is a wonderful, wonderful book. I feel like I'm asking a chef what their favorite fast food is. So I <laughs> appreciate the question here. Are there a couple of complimentary colors, or sorry, convenience colors that you like? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: just before I answer that, I want to just come back, because you just said something very good. I want to come back, and uh, now, now, I've lost my thread completely now. You just said um, about rethinking, and you said, mm-hmm. no, earlier on you had a question where you said, what two or three things would you like to get out of the book? And I think what you just said about how stop chasing hue, but start thinking about the properties, I would say... If there was one thing out of the book, if people were able to realise not to be trying to match the hue of what they're painting, but think of it as a, a general classified blue or a general classified red or, or yellow. In other words, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. Ha- you don't have to match the hue for it to appear in the painting to look like it because the other colors are going to push it in directions. So if there was one thing out of the book, it would be exactly what you just said. Instead of thinking about your colors, oh, that's a blue that will match that sky. It's think of your colors in combination because the other color, uh, you know, the, the red will push the blue towards, uh, hang on, my brain's completely like, really lost. lost my brain now, sorry. The, the orange in the red, the, the yellow in the red will push the blue, the orange in the red will push the blue towards its blueness. And the, the uh, you know, so the other colors will will react with it. So, sorry, go back now to your question, which was about convenience foods.
0: Yes, convenience, convenience colors. Convenience. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, uh, funny enough, I would say that actually ultramarine blue and burnt sienna are convenience colors. Definitely. Ultramarine blue and green shade. Ultramarine blue, green shade. Mm-hmm. Because they basically can do so much. But uh, I, no, hang on. Let's just say... Altarine Blue and Translucent Orange, Transparent Orange, I think it's called now, Translucent Orange, Transparent Orange, because they go directly to a black and you've got the orange and you've got the blue so and they can make a lovely brown. So maybe, maybe those two are convenient. Oh, oh, that's what you're going to paint, doesn't it? Um, I don't know. <laughs>
0: it's i mean you start into this early when you get into watercolor and people are like you should never use black right you're like avoid using black you know the next step is to use like a Payne's gray you know at least move into that direction and then uh and then actually mixing your own dark colors right so i think that's kind of the lessons we learn early but i think your book takes that whole to a whole new level in limiting our palette and and trying to to work the image I don't want to say work the image around the palette, but use the palette to render a, a, um, a, a thoughtful, intentional, unique, creative expression of what you're working on.
1: Yes, I would say that's very well said because basically it goes right back to that thing of saying, so you're using the subject to make a watercolor rather than using watercolor to paint a subject. So, Basically, if you have got a set of colors and inevitably three colors, one veering to a red, one veering to a yellow, one veering to blue. And I always hesitate to say red, blue and yellow because people immediately think of the sort of primary school, red, blue and yellow. And Mm -hmm. the red could be anything from magenta through to burnt sienna. Uh, The yellow could be anything from quinacridone gold or raw umber right through to lemon yellow. And the blue could be anything from indigo through to violet. So basically, if you if you find three colors that veer in the direction of those three primaries and put them together, you might find you need a couple of others. You might find you just need one more. But basically, you can't help but win as a color scheme. You cannot help but have harmony. You cannot fail to have harmony. What you could do is then ruin it by adding too many other colors. You could ruin it by pushing it around too much. You could ruin it by overlaying too much. But you couldn't upset harmony because those three colors, the colour, each of the colors will push the other towards itself or away from itself, depending on which way it's going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I think i could spend all day with you just talking about this so i'm i'm mindful of your time and and uh the listener's time i don't want to push this too far uh, so i, I want to fit a few more things in but i just i in mean, totally just uh I, I, f- I feel like this is a whole different level of watercolor and i really appreciate this conversation i i wanted to ask you, you know, you've done a few other books as well, and I just wanted to make mention of this because we have a lot of urban sketchers that listen to the podcast, and I think you've done um, two recently, which is Learn to Paint Wildlife Quickly and Learn to Paint Portraits Quickly. Uh, This is amongst all the other books, and uh, I will talk about this later on, but I'm going to link to all of these so people can easily get access to that kind of stuff. Is there? You've done a number of books. Obviously, this one is is fantastic. Is there another book or two that you think would really elevate someone's game, if they're beginner, intermediate, uh, that you've really heard positive feedback? I you, you mean, all your books are brilliant, so I'm not going to ask you to pick a favorite, but I am. Uh, what, what, do you think there's another uh, book or two in what you've done that people would really kind of latch onto that would help them kind of move their game forward?
1: I think I have to go to what other people are telling me about them rather than what I would think, because that's really the And apparently, Learn to Paint People Quickly has really, really helped people, uh, urban sketching. I mean, obviously, if you're urban sketching, you're painting people a lot. There is another one called Learn Watercolour Quickly, which is, I think, more general. And therefore, I would say it's covering more than just people. So in a way, I would say that that would be the one because it's sort of the nuggets. In other words, it only takes about half an hour to read. But... It's giving you uh, succinct, what I think is the essence of watercolour. I, actually, I wrote a book called The Essence of Watercolours. <laughs> but I think that, was, that was out of print. But that would be one I would recommend. But I think it's out of print now. But learn watercolour quickly. In a way, we're saying all that more succinctly. So it's about the techniques. It's about, so it touches on the properties of colours. So it touches on lifting and grinding. It touches on all these things so that you start to hear them. Uh, and in a way, I would say if you're just starting out you don't want you want to be painting basically the only way to learn to paint is to paint you can i'd love to say you could read my books and by osmosis it will all but the truth is that ultimately you have to put brush to paper and you have to mix colors in the palette so the thing is to get painting and so one of these quick books is a very good way to start because within half an hour you can read them literally the whole idea was that they could be read They, they quickly didn't wasn't actually meant to be learning quickly it was meant to be reading quickly in the title <laughs> but um, uh, then only take sort of 30 45 minutes to read and then you could start basically because you've got the nuggets and so you've got an idea and so i would say learn watercolor quickly those these little books they're only sort of um sort of five by seven inches so they're small you could tuck them in you could take them with you outside if you're painting outside wonderful But learn to paint people quickly, apparently, because it's also got techniques in it, even though people is its subject. It apparently does seem to have sort of, I don't want to say hit the nail on the head, but you know what I mean? It's it's, Somehow it's it's resonated with people. And I think Art of the Limited Palette is doing the same. From the reviews I'm getting and the um, feedback I'm getting, it seems to have hit some nail on the head that is needed. And, And so it's sort of working it's really you know hard as a author cuz every t- book, you know you want to write a, something different but at the same time there's lots of stuff that's inevitably the same
0: i am really enjoying this book i highly recommend it i'm going to push this on to people because i think it is a different view and i think if if you couple this book with this podcast that you're going to make better art. Like, there's just, why would you? Like, why would you not be able to? Like, being able to, <laughs> to, to take what you've talked about here and then some of the experiences we've talked about as a matter of understanding, you know, redefining red, yellow, and blue into the shades of other colors and understanding that kind of uh, triad doesn't have to be well defined. I think is an exciting experience for watercolorists. Rather than thinking about, oh no, how am I going to get this 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 really bright yellow to this kind of burnt sienna motif that I want to be able to portray? And I think just liberating people from that perspective, I think is exciting. So I want to make sure that we get to the homework. And so I have a I have a couple more questions for you, and then we'll jump into the homework. You mentioned Africa a few times. Is that important to you? Like visiting Africa? Like it seems to be like the colors and, and you fall back to that with Burnt Sienna. And So can you speak about how important uh, that part of the world has been for your life and your art?
1: 13. We, a, a girl came to our school who uh, came from what was then uh, Northern Rhodesia, I think. Or, or Southern, no, Southern Rhodesia. Um, it became Zimbabwe. And she just talked about she'd never seen snow before. And I remember snow falling on her shoulders and her saying, oh, it's wet. And it seemed sort of suddenly so exotic. Africa just, basically, from then on, I knew I had to get to Africa somehow, some way. And eventually when I went to Africa, of course, it didn't disappoint at all. Just the, the smell of the soil as you get off the plane is enough to, you know, I think I think most people, when they, you, you know, you fall in love with Africa because it's it, It's just, it's got landscapes you know, amazing landscapes. It's got amazing wildlife, amazing people. And it's got big open skies. It has... It doesn't have black... Sh- Apparently, Australia has black shadows, which I've never been to Australia, and I'm going to have to find these black... See these black shadows, because Africa has blue and violet shadows. And they're, sometimes they're turquoise. I mean... Ugh of course it doesn't have too much green as well and I'm I'm well southern Africa doesn't obviously lots of parts of Africa do have lots of green the middle bits um, but I am a great lover of the yellows and the ochres and the reds and the blues and I think if I had been to East Anglia in England earlier in my life than when I ended up going there for, for television in the you know, 90s later, uh, and saw the big open skies. I remember thinking, help, if I'd seen this first, I might not have needed Africa. But it was the big <laughs> open skies. You've probably got them in Canada. But big open skies, uh, you know, for a watercolorist, that's three-dimensionality, you know, and then you're making it flat, and you still have to make it big on a tiny bit of paper.
0: <laughs> I love your enthusiasm. It's infectious yeah that's I've never been to Africa and maybe at some point I'll get there but uh, it's I, I see your pictures and not even having been there there's a definite flavor to those and it's wonderful seeing them mixed in even amongst the other pieces that you've done it's incredible and so i I wanted to you to speak to that because you mentioned Africa a little bit I just wanted people to hear that and and you still make time for Africa in your life, right you're still down there
1: yeah I have a studio in Cape Town so i'm I'm there um, a, a painting from and out of that studio and going into the bush a lot yeah.
0: That's incredible, I have a real high level question for you about art and artists, especially within watercolor. What do you think holds an artist back from getting to the next level in watercolor
1: what, what do you mean by next level
0: so either so that's a good question so what I'm thinking is is you do a lot of teaching uh you do these workshops as well you know, there's ways that you can improve your watercolor work. And it could be that it's composition, which is partially watercolor, but more just around, uh, you know, staging your work. It it could be that, you know, it's this uh, more kind of harmonious palette around what you're doing. It could be, you know, being more intentional about preserving the white, playing with granulation versus, um, you know, relying on staining. Like, I think it's, you know, as a as an artist, whether it's watercolor, oil, or graphite, we're always trying to look at how can we, and, and to be honest, this is the way I look at it. It's it's how can I weave more magic without giving away my secrets? Like I, I feel that sometimes that's what it is, right? It's it's turning skill or process into something that's repeatable, that that that, that kind of allows people to see what you see in your head, because I I find that I. The the t- disappointment I have sometimes in my pieces is my hand hasn't caught up with my mind. I'm not letting go of what I want it to be, but what I did isn't where I need it to be. And I think maybe that's what I mean is is how do you get to where you want it to be from where where you how do you get to where you need it to be from where you have it right now?
1: I'm not sure you ever do.
0: So maybe maybe the thing that holds back holds back artists is not learning.
1: Every painting is an exploration. The only time when it isn't is if somebody has commissioned something that I'm happy to repaint similarly. And then in a, and in a way, and that is also an exploration because actually, actually copying your own work, so to speak, is quite exploratory. It's quite interesting because you actually think, hey, I've got to see how I did this now. So actually that can be exploratory in itself. I don't, I don't think it's about levels, you see, because I think it's a more about a kind of magic that happens. I think it's almost, you need, um, what's the word, you know, the technique, you know you need the technical ability. So you know how to mix, you know, what's kind of supposed to happen, et cetera. But I think it's putting that 110% concentration in and it's kind of allowing things to happen that you're not, enti- it's sort of letting the medium dictate a bit more. Every, for everybody, I mean, what you were saying then, all those different things, all those could be things people have to learn or let go of. But I'm not sure it's levels because I think one can, I think it's a bit like exercise. You know, you can do it regularly and everything's fine and you get better and better and better. Then you don't do it for a fortnight and suddenly you're stiff as a board. And I think the same thing happens with watercolor that it is like you said, it's learning, but I think it's actually doing. I think it's just, you've just got to do Do it because the familiarity, the more you do something, certainly some things I do, I paint the same subject over and over and over and over and over and over because one, I love doing it. But two, different things happen is that you get, you suddenly realize what doesn't matter. You get more confident about some brushstrokes because you think, oh, it didn't matter when that overlapped. It didn't matter when that bled into that. And you realize that some things do matter and some things don't matter. And the more times you you know, it's not that you're copying it. It's that each time you're learning because you're painting something similar or using similar set of colors or slightly different set of colors. And you can't help but learn. You will learn by default. You won't even know you're learning. But if you then don't paint, say, for six weeks or a year or something, you're going to have to forget it because it's the same as a golfer or, or you know, or, a, you know a, a, or, or just exercise. You can't help but forget it because muscle memory or whatever it is, you know, is gone.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think the other bit, having stopped art for, you know, a few days, a week, and coming back to it is, I think what we get good at as artists is constantly critiquing what we're doing in that moment in time and coming back to it. You know, like, I think that what, that's what makes you good is the ability to identify what you're doing right and wrong in that moment in time and adjust it in real time. I think that when we, when we stop doing something for a week or two, we forget that, and so that's how we get so deep in the weeds over in the corner. There is because we haven't been circling, and we've just relied on the ba- on the fact that I did this really good piece two weeks ago. I'm a better painter than I was before, but we forget that the, the painting's an endpoint, and we forget how important that is. That we're constantly reviewing and critiquing and understanding that we still have a way to, ways to go. And I've just I've never had a question come back to me this way making me rethink what I do and how I do it. So <laughs> yeah. And and people don't see this but you're really darkly lit. So all I see is your face coming out of the darkness and it feels like I'm speaking to uh, a watercolor spirit <laughs> queen here <laughs> who comes out of the darkness every so often to share the wisdom. It's uh, it's quite a magical experience right now. So I always get to this point around homework. People get engaged with uh, with you and they'll be able to follow kind of everything that we've talked about, the materials, your work. I'm going to link out to a bunch of your pieces. I'm going to link directly to the art of the limited palette, but I'd like a little bit of homework for them, something that they can explore. So Hazel, I'm wondering if you have something that they could try right now to help kind of move them forward.
1: I am guessing, and I might be wrong because you might be all very disciplined people who don't go buying lots of different colors, but I bet most of you <laughs> have... Too many colours sitting in drawers and you haven't touched them or used them. You've got lots of tubes. Now, watercolour lasts forever. Even if the tube has gone hard, it's just a pan now. So split it open with a knife. You can use it. It's never gone until it starts going into sort of pigment particles. It's still fine because it's bound with the gum arabic. So what I want you to do is I want you to find a... Uh, I want you to divide your the colours into sort of reddish colours, yellowish colours and bluish colours. So your blues are going to vary from your violet right through to your indigo, turquoises, all those kind of colours. So it'll be your ceruleans, your thallows, all those kind of things. And then your reds are going to vary from magentas and crimsons right through to your ready browns. So it could be light red, it could be brown madder, it could be burnt sienna in there. Okay, any of those. And then your yellows are going to vary from raw umber, uh, right through a quinacridone gold, say, right through to lemon yellow. So through your cadmium yellows, through your Windsor yellows, whatever. And I bet you, I mean, I'll be amazed that most people, I mean, there will be, I'm sure quite a few colors that you have never picked up. You've picked up from a a shop you never used. And then I want you to put just take, it doesn't matter which one, one yellow, one red, one blue. So they're not, these are not Reds, yellows, and blues, these are in the yellow family, in the red family, in the blue family. So take one from each and then make a painting just using those three and see what happens. Because I bet you, you're going to find a whole lot of new combinations. It'll be very hard for it to go badly wrong, given that you've only got three colours. You may find that, say, for example, if you picked three opaque colours, and you might not even know that they're opaque if you're, you know, new to watercolour. You might find that it goes muddy and chalky quite quickly. So you'll think, "Hmm, why is this?" And so you'll start to realise that that's what opacity does. You might pick three transparent colours and realise you can mix some really deep darks. So you'll get excited by that because that's what transparency does. And you might, or you might pick some granulating ones, and you'll see the granulation happening. So basically, you will be getting to know colours by default. You can't help. And just make subjects that you feel confident with. So if you normally paint flowers, paint flowers. If you like painting your cat, paint your cat. Just It doesn't matter what colour this the the, the subject is. You're just using those three colours. And so where you see anything that's towards a yellow, so a browny colour or an orangey colour, is going to be your yellows, where you see anything towards a red. So it's going to be your orangey color or your reddy or your browny color. And where you see your violety colors, it might be the crimson color. And then where your blues are, it's going to be your darks and your blacks and your bluey colors. And so, in other words, you're not trying to copy the colors of your cat or your flowers. You are using these three you've got. So your limited palette is those three colors. But you are going to have fun because you, you, you're, you're off the hook. It's not your fault if you pick the wrong colors. <laughs>
0: right. I love that, man! Your uh, your joy and enthusiasm for watercolor is just uh, phenomenal, and I know that I'm going to try this homework. I I do. I am guilty of having some paints that I've not used. I've uh, and I'm guilty of uh, too many reds. So I do have to trim my reds down. Some I've never used, but I thought I could. Once again, in a shop. Oh, that looks nice. I don't have that one, I don't think. And then you end up buying two tubes of it anyway. But uh, I, I do love that homework. Uh, that's going to be exciting. I'm curious to see what people are going to create with that. So before we say goodbyes, I just wanted to maybe give you the opportunity to tell us where people can find you online. And I will link to them. But if you can maybe just share where you're most active online.
1: Well, I've got a website, which is mynameplus.com. Oh, it's also called All Sewn Up.
0: Com. <laughs> I love that, by the way.
1: <laughs> uh, it's the same website. Uh, and uh, so that's the um, main place to find activities and things. I don't put everything up there. I'm, I, I wish I had more time to do so, but I'm painting most of the time. So, uh, And then I also am on social media with Instagram, and I – think my handle's my name but i don't know what the. Ha- i didn't even know that things were called a handle till the other day i was asked what was your handle and i thought oh, i don't know <laughs> but i think it's my name i'm pretty it sure is it is
0: your name oh, mm-hmm.
1: thank you and then facebook as well is, is my name
0: yeah awesome so i'm going to link to all of that uh once again i'll link to everything that we spoke about your books especially your most recent one the art of the limited palette which you can get from amazon in a day so that's fantastic so I, I wanted to say thank you, Hazel. This has been inspiring and just a joyous celebration of watercolor and art and creativity. And having done it for so long and still having the enthusiasm and producing the beautiful pieces you have, it's ma- making me rethink my style and maybe loosening things up and trying that exploration, trying to limit my palette. And I just, I, I, I love that you put the time aside and join me from across the pond to, to kind of talk about watercolor and painting. Thank you so much. I do appreciate your time.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure. And I wish I called it the unlimited art of the limited palette because I thought it was a great idea and I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe volume two. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care of yourself. I'm looking forward to, to seeing more of you in uh, 2023. Bye. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Hazel and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm. six. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.